Mark chapter 5, verse 21. And when Jesus had crossed again in the boat to the other side, a great crowd gathered about him, and he was beside the sea. Then then came one of the rulers of the synagogue, Jairus by name, and seeing him, he fell at his feet, and he implored him earnestly, saying, My little daughter is at the point of death. Come and lay your hands on her so that she may be made well and live. And he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years and who had suffered much under many physicians and had spent all that she had and was no better, but rather grew worse. And she had heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. And immediately the flow of blood dried up and she felt in her body that she was healed of her disease. And Jesus, perceiving in himself that power had gone out from him, immediately turned about in the crowd and said, Who touched my garments? And his disciples said to him, You see the crowd pressing around you, and yet you say, Who touched me? And he looked around to see who had done it. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. And he said to her, Daughter, your faith has made you well. Go in peace and be healed of your disease. And while he was still speaking... It came from the ruler's house some who said, Your daughter is dead. Why trouble the teacher any further? But overhearing what they said, Jesus said to the ruler of the synagogue, Do not fear, only believe. And he allowed no one to follow him except Peter and James and John, the brother of James. And they came to the house of the ruler of the synagogue, and Jesus saw the commotion, people weeping and wailing loudly. And when he had entered, he said to them, Why are you making a commotion and weeping? The child is not dead. But sleeping, they laughed at him. But he put them all outside, and he took the child's father and mother and those who were with him, and they went in where the child was. Taking her by the hand, he said to her, Talitha Kumi, which means, Little girl, I say to you, arise. And immediately the girl got up and began walking, for she was twelve years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this, and he told them to give her something to eat. This is the word of the Lord. You may be seated. Father, we pray that you would breathe new life again into us this morning. Father, I know we come this moment with distractions, with our minds abuzz and and, uh, thinking of so many other things. But we pray that we would pause this moment and consider your word. That your word would cut through everything else to speak directly to our hearts. We pray that by your spirit, you would do this in Jesus name. Amen. Well, church in many cities uh, across the nation, but also across the world, there has been growing an issue regarding uh, EMR vehicles, emergency response vehicles, ambulances that have been delayed, delayed, delayed and and stuck in traffic. Oftentimes heavy traffic uh, trying to get where they need to go. Uh, there was an article um, regarding uh, the Philippines, the second largest city in the Philippines, Manila, where they had actually installed specific lanes for the emergency response vehicles to get where they needed to go. Um, and yet it didn't take long for the people there uh, to crowd out those lanes, to take them up and use them and block the ambulances from making it where they needed to go to pick up the people in time. One of the one of the drivers, he says, you feel empty. 
Uh, It's as if you were not given a chance to do everything in your capacity to help, said the ambulance driver and paramedic. Uh, if, If the traffic was not that bad, I could have saved the patient. He added, recalling how he lost a patient when congestion had tripled the time that it would have taken him to get the patient to the hospital. And so we, we see the issue of delay for rescue. Yet on the other hand, I think many of you are aware of the recent events that have folded right here on our mountain. On Mount Hood, the two fallen climbers who were going up the Luthold Kalur, and then they, they fell down uh, because of avalanche, and, and they somehow were delayed. One of them died, while the other one waited as, as minutes and hours turned into days to finally be rescued. And w- in that sort of circumstance, we tend not to be as upset as the traffic blocking the ambulance. We're less upset because we realize some of these forces are, quote-unquote, out of our control, the weather, um, the the conditions, etc. But on the other hand, with the ambulance, there seems to be something we could do. If the cars would just get out of the way, the ambulance could make it and people could probably be saved. Well, circling around both these issues, it's an issue of time. Which time can be controlled? Which cannot? Time for us, friends, is a major issue. For these disciples, it was a major issue. It still is an issue for us, for you and I today. We struggle when it seems like if God would just intervene, if God would just break in, this issue would be resolved. And so Jesse and I, we have friends in Pennsylvania right now who have desired for years to have children, years They have made visits to doctors. They have had testing. They have prayed millions of prayers. They, They have in time waited and waited and waited. They have cried many tears. They recently were given an opportunity to go adopt a child from Pennsylvania. They went down to North Carolina and, and the wife ended up being stuck and is, and is there in North Carolina trying to adopt this child. And when she, it seems like she might be able to sign this paperwork and get back to Pennsylvania, well, they're still faced with delay as the birth mom is trying to pull back on the whole thing. And you think, what is going on here, Lord? What are you doing? This was not part of the plan. And I suspect there are many of you here too who say the same thing. Many of you here who are sitting, who are waiting and waiting when time is important and timetables make the difference between what a rescue or an adoption or a housing situation or a baby or a new job or a future spouse or something else that you are waiting for and waiting for and waiting. Meanwhile, trying to remain in faith, believing that he is good and will work out his perfect plan. Well, our passage here this morning addresses this very issue. And to get at this issue of waiting and time and trusting, I have a fourfold outline for you, which is very heartwarming. I hope you catch the sarcasm in this when I say this fourfold outline is distrust, disease, delay, and death. Very heartwarming. Distrust, disease, delay, and death. So first, we're going to look at distrust. This morning, I'm actually beginning with the end of our passage. So if you scan down in your Bibles to chapter 6, you'll see where I'm at here as Jesus is rejected at his hometown in Nazareth. Now, Jesus reminds me here of another biblical character. He reminds me of Joseph. Do you remember the boy? The coat of many colors. Uh, it, it has been well known that Joseph from Genesis really is a type of Christ. Joseph 
foreshadows in his life Jesus in many, many ways. One of the particular ways that he did this was with his dreams. Do you recall about Joseph where he's dreaming and he has this particular dream about these sheaths, these bundles of grain? And he, and he has uh, the, the 11 of them are representative of his 11 brothers. And he says, I had a dream. My bundle of grain, my sheath stood up while the 11 brothers would bow down to mine. And his brothers respond, are you going to reign over us? He was the younger brother. And to make matters worse for Joseph, he tells his mother and father that he also had another dream. In this dream, you have the sun and the moon and the 11 stars, and they all bow down to him. And, and, the, and, the, and the father and the mother are like, are, are you serious? Are you, you're, we're we're going to bow down to you? How is this going to be? And they are in what we see here in chapter 6. They're in disbelief about the person of Joseph. But then it does come to pass. When? Well, when the history of Genesis, it's not until the revealing that the siblings and the parents will honor and recognize Joseph's position. It's not until Joseph is the vice president, essentially, of Egypt. And it is revealed not to just be an Egyptian, but Joseph, the son of Jacob. And we also see this exact same scene, essentially, playing out with Jesus and his hometown, and especially with his family. There was unbelief until the revealing. That's the pattern. Unbelief until the revealing. And so too with Jesus in his hometown, there's this unbelief carries on. There's coming a day when they will eventually bow down and recognize he is the revealed son of God, the resurrected one. And this is when they will revere him, not just as a prophet, but as Lord. But meanwhile, we see that their lack of fruit, their distrust, their unbelief, and what the fruit of it is. I'm going to read in chapter 6, verses 1 through 6. Catch how this happens. He went away from there, and he came to his hometown, and his disciples followed him. And on the Sabbath, when they began to teach in the synagogue, and many who heard him were astonished, saying, Where did this man get these things? What is the wisdom given to him? How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter, the son of Mary, the brother of James, and Joseph, and Judas, and Simon? Are not his sisters here with us? And they took offense at him. And Jesus said to them, A prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And he could do no mighty work there, except that he laid his hands on a few sick people and healed them. And he marveled because of their unbelief. And he went about among the villages teaching. Well, isn't this just Jesus the carpenter? Isn't this just the carpenter? We know him. We grew up with him. I don't recall anything special about this Jesus. We played at recess with him. We ate meals together. Nice kid. But, but, but uh, some sort of miracle worker? Do you know who my favorite carpenter is? It's not Jesus. Because I've never personally seen any of Jesus' woodworking abilities. My, my favorite carpenter is Bob Vila. You know Bob Vila? Bob Vila. I mean, he's on TV as I'm growing up. Probably the nicest guy on TV you've ever met. Uh, I don't think there's probably a bad bone in Bob Vila's body. He's super entertaining to watch. You, you watch him and you see his, his craftsmanship going into, into uh, his work as he turns an old Victorian home and spruces it up and brings it right back to life. Uh, and, and you're just kind of weirdly relaxed at watching this man work. But a miracle worker? No way. A prophet? Nah. A Messiah? I, I, I don't know about that. 
I think that that's how they view Jesus here at this point. Why? Jesus says, because a prophet is not heard in their homes or hometowns for that matter. Why? The familiarity with the family members and others can take away the credibility. Right there is the danger for us, friends. Right there is the danger that we have to be aware of. The familiarity can breed an indifference to the gospel. Familiarity with Jesus can actually breed a lack of faith. Jesus had become to these folks in Nazareth, and I'm worried about you, church members, that Jesus has just become to you a Bob Vila, a nice guy, perhaps a bit strange at times. But Jesus can become sterile in your minds. He can become just this thought, this idea, this out there thing, and not a true, real person who is really as powerful and really as loving as we see here in the book of Mark. So if you find yourself growing cold to this Jesus, if you find yourself saying, he's become sterile to me, this is why the church is the church. This is why we have each other. You ought to reach out to someone here and share with them and saying, I want to re-fall in love with Jesus. I need him to become real again to me. I need him to reveal himself in his word to me today. And this is why the church is here to pray with one another, to do that very thing. And if you don't find somebody here, reach out to myself or one of the elders. We would love to do that, to pray with you in that. Pray that the good news becomes good again to you. The result here is really astonishing regarding what happens here because of this unbelief. He could not do, the text says, a major miracle for these people. He was able to do some simple healings, but it's, it's not as though Jesus was not powerful enough to do these miracles. That's, that's not the point. I think the point is the being that he was operating out of the spirit and that these works that were done were done in faith. The unbelief and the lack of faith made it so that he was unable to do as many or as miraculous. And so here we have at this intro in, in chapter six, what we're getting is a picture of unbelief. Now, I began with this because I want us to see the contrast. We're beginning with the unbelief because I want to rewind back to chapter 5 where we will begin to catch the goodness of faith and belief. So hopefully we're, we're turning from the worst to better and better here. So we're leaving the, the section of distrust and moving to disease. Now we're looking at the disease in chapter 5 verses 21 and following. First, you already know. You know, because we just read this. This is not one disease we're looking at. This is two diseases we are looking at. Um, the first one we see is the dying girl. It's Jairus' daughter. Now, Jairus, we don't know a whole lot about him. Um, we, we do know that he is the ruler of the synagogue. What does that mean? Well, it means he's not the priest and he's not a rabbi. But he was one who held a position of authority. He would have been well-revered. He would have been loved in the, in the community here. And after this episode that we covered last week with the demoniac, Jesus and the disciples are crossing back over the Sea of Galilee and they land on the shore here. And you can imagine that as the people caught his boat coming, somebody must have ran off and told people in the marketplace and Jairus must have been walking along there and saw the boat as well and thought, here's my chance. I've heard good things about this Jesus. I'm going to come down and greet him there when he arrives on the shore. And so Jairus seeing from a distance with great faith, he sits at his feet, imploring Jesus to help him. 
And notice he says, put your hands on her, not, he says, put your hands on her, not so that she may be healed or might be healed. In Jairus' mind, he says, if Jesus lays his hands on his daughter, it's as good as done. So the scene takes place on the shores of the sea, but you could imagine the ruler's um, house would have been located off at the synagogue. And so he is, at this point, they're on the shore, but at some point they need to get over that way. So they begin to hit the trail. Maybe it's five, maybe it's 10, maybe 15 minutes away on by walk. And so they're going to walk over to Jairus's house where they will run into his daughter there who is ill. And as they're on this trail, by, by this point, many people have heard, people leaving the markets, people leaving their homes, they're coming in just thinking, and, and there, this was a common belief at the time, if I could just touch the, the, the uh, clothing, or if I could just touch the man who is a, is a wise prophet or a healer, then, then I would be able to be healed or have other people healed. And so, therefore, these people are coming in, and you see Jairus and his daughter are not the only ones here that need Jesus. And so, therefore, the delay. So, we look now at the delay, and we'll see this in verses 24 through 28. I'm going to reread this section to you. And, and he went with him, and a great crowd followed him and thronged about him. And there was a woman who had a discharge of blood for 12 years, and who had suffered much under many physicians. She had spent all that she had, and she was no better, but she grew worse. She heard the reports about Jesus and came up behind him in the crowd and touched his garment. For she said, if I touch even his garments, I will be made well. We'll pause right there. This poor woman, she's in this awful circumstance, isn't she? She not only has this physical physical pain or ailment in her body, but she probably is at this point had grown anemic. Um, she's constantly weak, perhaps from this loss of blood. Uh, but it gets worse. She's not considered clean by Old Testament standards. To have a flow of blood like this made you unclean. You were not able to be in proximity with certain people, nor were you allowed to gather at the synagogue. So she would have not joined them for worship for maybe as long as we don't know, maybe as long as 12 years, she has not come in the congregation. And she further, it gets worse. She has spent, friends, her last dime trying to get healed from this. She spent all that she had. And, 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 and rather than get better, things were getting worse. She, she's in a desperate place. She's in a desperate position at this point. And so by first century standards, she's considered to be incurable. This is terminal. She's in pain. She's isolated and unclean. And I think some of you have felt that here. Some of you have had experience of this being isolated, in pain, unclean. You know what this is like. And she was faced with an ailment that left her wishing, just wishing, hope against hope, that this would just disappear and go away, that she could just be in fellowship, be loved, and be well enough to live, quote-unquote, normally. Well, Mark in this gospel has made it very clear that where Jesus goes, so goes the kingdom. And, And this kingdom that he brings is a healing kingdom. Which means when we are there, when you and I, someday, when we're there, we, whatever scars you have, whatever effects of the fall that you have, whatever mental health issues, whatever physical pains, whatever frustrations, whatever knowledge of our being unclean, whatever our sin is, it will be all vanishing instantaneously. It'll be wonderful. It'll be permanent. 
And the avenue that will get you there, the avenue that will get us there as a church, is the same path, the same road that this woman goes through right here. It's the woman's great faith. Not if he prays for me and lays hands on me, but if I could just touch his clothes, I'd be healed. Not, she's, she's thinking, it doesn't even have to be him. I just need to touch his clothes. And amazingly, she touches his clothes and she senses within herself that it worked. She's been healed. It really worked. And Jesus knew that his power had been used at this point. Who did that? Who did that? Who had faith like that so that my power could be used to heal them in a miraculous way? Teacher, teacher, look, everybody's crowding in around you. We're right here with you. That person touched you. That person touched you. I, I touched you. Who are you saying who touched you? But the woman knew. She, with fear and trembling, came to Jesus. And listen to this, friends. She tells him everything. Look at verse 33. But the woman, knowing what had happened to her, came in fear and trembling and fell down before him and told him the whole truth. She told him the whole truth. She may have thought that, hey, if I tell this Jesus everything, he would be furious. He could be upset that I didn't ask, that I just showed up and did it. Maybe he could revoke the healing. He'd say, you were healed, but because you did this without asking and you didn't get my permission for this healing, because you didn't let myself be glorified in it, you just did it. I'm going to revoke the healing. You won't be healed after all. But friends, when you, like this lady, come to Jesus with the whole truth, And nothing but the truth. It is not the case that Jesus will cast you out. That's not the picture here. It may be counterintuitive, but I want you to catch this. The gospel is like this in many ways. When you come to Jesus with the whole truth, that's precisely when he brings the healing to you. Do you get it? And by healing, I don't necessarily mean physical. Although God is a big God, he can do that. But I'm speaking primarily spiritually. Saying that God already knows all of you. He already knows your past ailments. He knows your frailty. He knows the ways that you're tempted. He knows the ways that you sin. And he loves it when you, like this woman, come in faith. And say the whole truth. And tell him everything. First John chapter 1 verse 9. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Think through all the things. Think through the things that you'd rather nobody here knows about you. Think about the things that you think are so awful that you would never want anyone to know. I think about my sexual past, my drug use, my past marriages, my past jealousy, my past enjoyment of gossip or slandering, my past fits of rage or anger or dark heart. And yet here she just comes out with it all. And her faith in Christ made her well. And Christ does not say your hocus pocus recipe made you well. It wasn't the clothing even even that actually, uh, or the touch that made her well. It was faith that was at work. What's going on here? Friends, faith is not saving her. Faith is the avenue that brings Christ to her. This is exactly how it is for us. Faith is not saving you. Faith is the avenue that brings Christ to you. So that Christ would be the one who heals you. Christ will be the one who pardons you. And, and this is not in this passage, but just as an aside, I, I hope that we would catch this as a whole church body. That if Jesus has made someone clean, we have no business 
calling them or treating them unclean. You, you know the saying when a marriage ceremony is happening, what God has joined together, let no man separate. Friends, what God has declared is clean. Let no man or woman treat as unclean. Otherwise, your leaders here, your deacons, your elders, we're all in big trouble. <laughs> and so, friends, we get this picture here of this woman miraculously healed in faith. But did you lose the picture? You, you may have lost it already. Uh, Jairus is in the corner. Jairus is looking and seeing all of this going on. He was on the shores. He's headed to his house. His daughter is dying. And then what? A delay. An interruption. And while this interruption is going on, um, he was probably thinking several things. First, he's probably thinking the reports are true. I just saw Jesus heal this woman. The reports are true. He really is that good. But then, rush hour. Rush hour on a Friday, on a vacation Friday in Sandy, when now 26 is all blocked up, and the ambulance is on its way up here to get you, and it's just delayed, delayed, delayed. You're going nowhere. You better believe, for for Jairus at this point, anxiety, stress were probably bubbling up. While it takes... Uh, us only 10 or maybe 15 seconds to read this whole delay in the conversation and action here. It could have been 10 or 15 minutes by the time Jesus had come, said, come out with it. Let's talk. And, and friends, if you are a Christian or if you're considering becoming a Christian, you need to know that being a follower of Jesus means you live under his time frame and not your own. You may want things to happen according to your timing. And, and, and Jesus, friends, may purposely let you down over and over and over again. Because it is his timing that will prevail. And, and he may make you, make you wait through long, long seasons of delay while you sit there and you wonder. And I've been there and some of you have been there where you're wondering, God, are you at work at all? What are you doing? You're, this is a delay. Why? It has been said that if we knew everything that Jesus knows, you wouldn't change the timing of anything. That you would want exactly what you've gone through to be what you've gone through if you knew everything that he knows. And so Jairus, he sits there waiting. Jairus' daughter at home, she's breathing heavily, very heavy. This little girl is fading fast. And Jesus stops to handle this woman with the flow of blood. And this conversation delays and sucks up precious time. And then while perhaps wrapping up before carrying on down the road, here it is, friends, here it is. Someone runs up from the crowd to the crowd gathered around Jesus with Jairus right there. Jairus probably can see it in their eyes as they're running down the trail. He knows it's coming. Jairus, Jairus, I'm so sorry. It's over. It's too late. Your daughter is dead. And he receives what is the worst possible news that you could ever receive. Don't bother the teacher. It's too late. And this brings us then to the death. This last section here. It is here, friends, that I would like to remind you that discipleship and learning what it means to be a citizen in this kingdom, to be a disciple of this Jesus There's many ways in which we are learning things. Some things from Jesus are one-to-one teaching correlations. He's speaking directly to us when he says things like, I came not to call the righteous, but the sinner. Other times Jesus is teaching us in other ways. He uses parables 
to try and teach us. So he'll say something like the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. But then there are other times like here in which he teaches indirectly through the miracles, something about the kingdom and the king as if just uh, enough for us to get a taste that if you're with the king in his kingdom, it will look like this. And through Mark, let me just rewind because I know you've forgotten. I have too. Here's what we've seen with this king. Simon Peter's mom being healed from a fever, a paralyzed man now walking, a leper now clean and healed, a man with the withered hand now restored, threatening weather stopped, a demoniac now free from chains and torture, a woman with the flow of blood for 12 years now ceased, and many other healings which are not detailed out. And now the greatest thing, even greater, the dead rising to life. Well, friends, Jesus still speaking with the woman and others. He overhears the the commotion with Jairus and he says to him, do not fear, only believe. And Jesus then heads in with the inner three, which is Peter, James, and John. And in the morning, uh, uh, family is there sitting in the home. Now, typically, this is the way it would have been in in their day. The, the, The teaching was that if someone passed, you actually had to hire out people who would be in the home mourning the death of the, of the loved one. And, and even the poorest of families were required to have at least two flute players plus a woman who would be hired out to wail and mourn the death of this loved one. So Jairus, being a man of stature, you could imagine, he probably didn't have the lowest bar. He probably had more. He probably had several people playing instruments, several people wailing. And Jesus will set the trap for them here at this point when he says, why are you wailing? The child is just sleeping. What? The hirelings stop being paid to mourn and now they're being paid to laugh they start laughing he says no he takes the father and the mother he takes the inner three disciples and they go into the girl's room and then see what we see in verse 41 taking her by the hand he said to her talitha kumi which means little girl i say to you arise Now, this is not original to me. I believe I heard this from Ed Clowney many years ago. But crucial to this whole scene is to understand what Jesus said. First, he says, the girl is not dead, but sleeping. Now, you and I know as readers, she was dead. Her heart stopped beating. So when Jesus says she's sleeping, no, 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 no. That's not how it is, Jesus. She was dead. And at this point, Jesus is making for us here is that death for those he raises It's just like them taking a catnap. They can be woke up. And here we see Jesus doing exactly what any loving father would do with their child when it is time to wake them up. Now we read this and it sounds so wooden. It sounds so impersonal. It sounds so removed. Little girl, I say to you, arise. But the issue is at times for us, the Aramaic translations are using the, the, uh, the definitions of the words and it loses the force of what it would have sounded like if we were right there. Now, just to back up for a second, when I wake up my kids in the morning, when I'm feeling rather ferocious, when I'm feeling a bit cantankerous, here's how I will wake them up. I will walk in the room, I will flip on the switch, and then as a family inside joke, which will now be an, an inside joke for all of us, is I will say, good morning, Gil, 
which is quoting a movie line from What About Bob, where he says good morning to his goldfish. And the goldfish is just sitting there swimming. And when he says good morning, Gil, the fish just does what the goldfish does. And so Bob gets angry and he says, I said good morning, Gil. And the fish just keeps on swimming and he goes about his business. So I go into the girl's room and I say, good morning, Gil. And they're like, oh, dad, please. But when I'm feeling loving, and here's what I normally love to do. I go into their room and I sit on their bed. And then because I've sat on the bed and it started to move, I see them start to stretch. Maybe they're yawning. And then I put my hand on their back. And what do I say? Say, honey, time to wake up. It's time to get up, honey. And right there, friends, is exactly much more the tone of what Jesus is saying to this little girl who is dead. He puts his hand on her back and he says, honey, wake up. It's time to get up. Let's go. And she does. Look at verse 42. Immediately, the girl got up and she began walking for she was 12 years of age. And they were immediately overcome with amazement. And he strictly charged them that no one should know this and told them to give her something to eat. This girl is not a ghost, friends. It's really her. She's really walking. She's really hungry. She's truly come back from the dead. And we have this significance. It's told. She's 12. That's really interesting. 12. This is an interesting number. It got me scratching my head and thinking, what is the connection? Well, first, let me just say in regards to this, I want you to know, church, Jesus is dealing in this section with two women. I think this is important for us not to gloss over or quickly move beyond this, that teachers and rabbis and and even uh, other Pharisees and those in their day would never address women, never deal with women. They overlooked women. Uh, women were to be set aside. You only dealt with the men. So it's very important for us not to miss that Jesus goes out of his way to approach, address, and hunt down and care and love for women. And that means for us men. I'm not speaking to you women. I'm speaking to you men. You in this church need to likewise exemplify Jesus's heart that you chase, care, and love women in this church. But second, I want you to think about the 12, the significance of the 12. This girl's 12 years old. The woman had a flow of blood for 12 years. And I was thinking and pondering on this. What is going on here with the 12? What's the connection? Why 12? Well, both of them have blood issues. On one hand, the woman flows when it shouldn't flow. And on the other, it isn't flowing when it should be. With the woman who had the flow of blood for 12 years, he stopped it. With the girl who had the twelve-year-old girl who had the flow of blood stop, but not in a good way, he he makes her heart continue to pump the blood and bring her back to life. You get the picture on both hands. Blood is stopping. Blood is going, and the connection of the twelve bringing these two women together. And don't forget, the twelve is an important biblical number. I, I wouldn't want to make a huge case for this, but I would want to just point out twelve tends to be the number of God's people. It's representative of the people of God. So I think at some level, we have to read our situation and their situation into ours, where we connect ourselves with these women, both these ladies, desperate for Jesus' help. In one case, the unclean woman was risking all to be healed. In the other case, the girl was so helpless, there was nothing she could risk because she had already lost everything. And by faith, the woman was healed. And by faith... The daughter was brought back to life. And so in this, you and I, we have a microcosm picture of the gospel. 
Faith in a powerful God working according to his own timing brings about salvation. And as a sidebar, when it looks like it's too late, when it looks like it's far too late, it's never too late. First Thessalonians chapter five, verse nine, for God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us so that whether we are awake or we're asleep, we might live with him. Do you believe this? Do you believe this? I think today he's speaking to you, calling you to trust this Jesus. Jesus is not telling you, pull yourself up by your bootstraps. Think about this. If he had said that to the girl, if he said this to the girl, what could she have used to leverage herself up? She's dead. She has nothing. She didn't have a heartbeat. She didn't have oxygen in her blood to even move a muscle. A huge part of the gospel message is this idea of the resurrection. First, the coming to life by faith, being born again, but also pictured in with this little girl that she comes back to life. And I think Mark right here wants us to feel this tension, to feel this angst here as we read these words. It was the same angst and the heaviness that the disciples and the townspeople and Jairus and his family felt. Mark wants us to get this. Jesus has the power to radically heal. He has full power over disease and over death. And friends, where there is faith, he will, this will surely happen. This will happen where there is faith. And I know some of you are saying, Thomas, I have faith. I have deep, deep faith. But I'm not being healed. I haven't been healed from this or from that. To which I want to say to you, don't you see here, friend, that the, that the delay, the delay, the delay is part of the point. Could Jesus heal you right now from your cancer? I fully believe he could. It's fully possible. But that's not always the case. In fact, many, many times it's not. So then the question for is for us, will we sit with faith, even weak faith, so that what happened to this girl will happen to you? You're not dead. It's just as if you went to sleep and you're immediately woken by Jesus. Honey, get up. As soon as you and I let go of this world, let go of everything as it is right here, we're going to hear those words someday. Honey, wake up your home. Would you pray with me? Father, we, we thank you for um, the recounting, the retelling of what happened here in these moments. I know it is easy for us to remove ourselves from these situations. But Lord, we know that you've given us your scripture so that they would penetrate into our heart, that we would see these two women, what happened to them, and recognize in many ways this has and will happen to us. Embolden our faith, we ask, so that we, not with weak faith, but stronger faith, will cling to Christ. We ask in Jesus' name. Amen.